We're continuing this morning, working our way through the book of Exodus. And you might remember that a few weeks back, we talked about digging deep into the text and looking for those little sparkles of gold and finding a seam and following it through. And today that seam leads us to gold, to a great big nuggety chunk of gold. Not the only chunk of gold that's present in the book of Exodus, but certainly this one is a really good one. For those that are regulars with us, you might also recall that we've been here before. Uh, it wasn't really all that long ago, just back at Easter time during our series on prophecies fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ, we saw how John's account of the crucifixion and the resurrection pointed to Jesus as our Passover lamb. And we're not going to spend any time today going back over the ground that we covered back then because 10 sermons couldn't really plumb the depth of everything that's in the two chapters that we have before us today. So I'll assume that most of you heard that Good Friday message and if you didn't and you want more details on today's topic then you just have to go um, back through the older sermons on the website till you get to Good Friday and you'll find it all there. What I want to do today is to discuss how a bunch of Israelite slaves being ordered out of Egypt by a ruthless pharaoh could possibly have any relevance for us today. And to do that, we first need to discuss the concept of types because Exodus is full of them. And picking up on them is the difference between a purely historical reading of Exodus and a mind-blowing, big-picture, life-changing, personal reading of Exodus. These types are the reason why one person can read Exodus and see a baby in a basket, a man in the wilderness, a pharaoh, some plagues, the Red Sea, manna and quail, a tabernacle, Ten Commandments, the golden calf, the tabernacle again, and that's all they see. And the same, another person can read the book and be moved to tears because what they see is themselves. You know, the Bible is full of types and nowhere more so than in the book of Exodus. And we've dealt with at least one of them already um, because we've looked at the many similarities between Moses and Jesus. You might recall we talked about um, how both Moses and Jesus were born when the Jews were in bondage to a foreign power. Both of them had a death sentence pronounced on their heads at birth by an evil king. Both of them spent at least some of their childhood in Egypt. Both of them were filled with compassion for their people in bondage and slavery. Both of them were rejected by those that they came to save and on and on it goes. And Matthew picks up on this in his gospel by presenting Jesus as the new Moses using many of the images that we find in Exodus and presenting him as the teacher of Israel. 
Now, I'm sure many of you remember, as I do, those big red hands that used to feature in the Coles commercials. And our screens for a while were kind of inundated by those advertisements for that particular supermarket in their prices are down campaign. Well, Exodus has got those big red hands right through it. And officially they're called types, not big red hands. But if it helps you, think of them as big red hands because they highlight something that points to something else. And when I read Exodus, I see those big red hands all over the place. And you will too by the time we get to the end of this series. So we've got, for example, Moses pointing to Jesus as the new Moses and teacher of Israel. Today we've come to the Passover pointing to Jesus as our Passover lamb. And eventually we'll get to the tabernacle pointing to the ministry and mission of Christ. Three types all pointing to something far greater. But that's not all, because each of these is a type within a type in the book of Exodus, because the whole book of Exodus can be seen as a type because it is a picture of our Christian journey. We begin as slaves to sin, just as Israel was a slave to Pharaoh in Egypt. They and we are delivered from our slavery by God. Then many of us spend quite some time whining and wandering in the wilderness before eventually we, like they, reach our promised land, which for us is heaven. And when you read Exodus like that, with those pointy hands in mind, suddenly history starts to look a lot more personal. So we pick up this week where Pastor Glenn left off last week, the ninth plague. The plague of darkness has just been lifted from the land and Pharaoh's resumed his bargaining with the Lord through Moses. And he puts a new deal on the table. These Israelites can go, they can go and worship as long as they leave all their livestock in Israel. And when we think back to the effect that those previous nine plagues have probably had on the livestock of Israel, it's not really a surprising request. However, Israel's livestock are required as sacrifices and as burnt offerings to God when they leave and go to worship the Lord. So Moses is resolute, no deal. Pharaoh is enraged and he ushers in the final plague himself when he commands Moses to get out of my sight. Make sure you don't appear before me again. The day you do is the day that you will die. And so Moses gives Pharaoh one final warning of what is about to happen. Around midnight, the Lord will go through Egypt, striking down every firstborn son, including the firstborn son of Pharaoh. Now, if you consider that Egypt understood Pharaoh himself to be a god, to strike down the firstborn son of Pharaoh would be to expose 
how completely inadequate and helpless Pharaoh was to save even his own son. So every firstborn son, including the firstborn son of Pharaoh, will be struck down. There will be loud wailing through all of Egypt, wailing like there has never been before and never will be again. Then, Pharaoh, all of your officials will come bowing down and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, says Moses, I will leave. Now, you would think that after having Moses' warnings spectacularly fulfilled nine times before, Pharaoh might have cause to stop and think for a while, but clearly he did not. After giving his final warning, we're told Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And from that time on, Moses had no more to do with Pharaoh and he turned his attentions instead to preparing the Israelites for what God would do among them. And the first thing that needed to be done comes in chapter 11, verse 2, for those of you that are following on. The people, Israel are to go and ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. Can you imagine how ludicrous that must have seemed to the Israelites? These Egyptians had them in slavery and they were to go and ask them for articles of silver and gold. I wouldn't want to have to go and ask my own neighbours for articles of silver and gold, and ours is a relationship of friendship, not one of master and slave. Bear in mind as well that at this stage, the Israelites have no idea why they might need silver or gold. At this stage, other than the repeated request of Moses to Pharaoh to let my people go, and the word of the Lord to Moses to that effect, There is no hard evidence that Israel is going anywhere. Pharaoh has not let them budge one little bit. I wonder, did they perhaps believe that eventually they would be allowed to go? And if that is what they believed, then perhaps they might have thought silver and gold might have been useful for trade. Or maybe they thought that God just wanted to plunder the wealth of Egypt as they left teach them some sort of lesson. I wonder, did any of them stop and look around them sometime later at the beauty of the tabernacle? Did they ever stop and gaze at all the gold and silver and precious stones that were part of that tabernacle and think, I remember asking my neighbour for his wife's earrings. They're here somewhere in all of this gold. Or my neighbour's neck collar. I wonder if it's in that lampstand over there. Did they ever stop and smile and think to themselves, God knew exactly what he was doing when he asked us to ask for that gold and silver. God did know what he was doing And although it must have seemed like such a ludicrous thing to do, Israel obeyed. And ultimately, when they left Egypt, they took the wealth of that nation with them. 
the tabernacle of the Lord was built on that wealth. How did that happen? Well, 11 verse 3 tells us, the Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Can you believe that? This very same Moses who had killed an Egyptian for beating up on a Hebrew then had had to flee for his own life into the wilderness. This same Moses who had all sorts of reasons why he was not the one for this leadership role. This same Moses who claimed to be a very poor speaker. This same Moses who was constantly at odds with Pharaoh. This same Moses had won the favour of all of Pharaoh's officials and the people of Egypt. That's what comes of obedience. Sometimes, like Israel, the things that God wants us to do seem at the time ludicrous. Bible college? You want me to go to Bible college? I work for a bank in the city. Take a position on the school council? Oh, think of all those evening meetings. I don't have time for that. Run for local council. I don't know the first thing about local council politics. Or sometimes like Moses, the thing that God wants us to do seems impossible. I'm not a good speaker. I have young children at home. Right now is not the time for me. I have a small business to manage. It might seem ludicrous. It might seem impossible but it's not for you to need to know the end goal. You just need to deal with what God puts in front of you in the here and now. What matters is our obedience. And so Moses approached Pharaoh and led the Israelites and the Israelites, without even knowing why they needed what they were asking for, boldly approached their Egyptian neighbours and asked for their silver and gold, and the Lord blessed their efforts. God knows what he has in store for each one of us, and he knows what's needed to prepare us for it. Don't wait for the full picture to be revealed to you, or you might just miss your opportunity to one day stand in the midst of whatever will be your equivalent of Israel's tabernacle and gaze in wide-eyed amazement at what the Lord has done. To look and see his hand through all of your life and see how he's brought you from here to here and gone with you every step of the way. What we need is not a detailed, individualised plan for each one of our lives from God. What we need is to be obedient in the things that he's placed right before us right here, right now. So what is it that God is putting before you? The task ahead of Moses was huge. Chapter 12, verse 27 tells us that when they left Egypt, there were 600,000 men on foot plus women and children. 
So safe to assume there were somewhere in the order of two million Israelites that left Egypt on that day. Men, women and children. That's roughly the population of Perth. A little bit um, a little bit under the population, half the population of Melbourne. And as I read that account, I can't help but comparing what Moses had before him with what our premiers have before them at the moment, trying to get two million people to obey a set of rules and regulations to stay at home. And we've seen the results in Victoria. It's like trying to herd cats. The majority head in the direction that you want them to do. But among the rest, there's some who'll take no notice. There's some that think they're above the regulations. There's some that think that they are the exception to the regulations. And there's some that will deliberately disregard the regulations. I don't envy our Premier one bit. It's a tough job he's got to do at the moment and he needs our prayers. Anyway, returning to our passage, here's Moses in the midst of roughly two million Israelites and he's got some instructions from the Lord and it's life or death here because he knows that if they obey, they will live and leave Egypt and if they disobey, they'll suffer the same fate as all of Egypt for God will strike down the firstborn in their homes also. And that's the key difference between this plague and the other nine that went before it. With every other plague, God made a distinction between Egypt and Israel without requiring any effort on Israel's part. When he sent flies, chapter 8, verse 22, there were flies everywhere except for Goshen, where the Israelites lived. When the livestock died, chapter 9, verse 4, no animal belonging to the Israelites died. Chapter 9, 11, when boils struck, they struck only Egyptians. And the only place that there was no hail when the hailstorms came was in Goshen, where the Israelites lived. And when darkness covered the land, 10.23, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. So here in this instance, something is required of Israel and that is their obedience. So we have Moses, two million people and a set of instructions from God. Let's have a look at part of what those instructions were. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 12 and we're reading from verses 5 to 13. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water 
but roast it over a fire with the head, the legs and the internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now we read this passage with all the benefit of hindsight. We know about blood sacrifice. We know why a perfect lamb was needed. We know about the exodus that's coming. We have the benefit of the Torah, the whole Old Testament, and then the New Testament to draw on. These people remember they did not. We're in the first part of the book of Exodus here. What comes before it is Genesis. All they've got is that oral history that's been passed down to them from what happened to their forefathers in the book of Genesis. We haven't even got to Leviticus yet where shared blood becomes really important and takes on special meaning. These people had none of that background. So all they knew was that God had worked powerful miracles in Egypt, that God had led their forefathers, the patriarchs, and that this same God was calling them to obey. And this request must have seemed strange. They had never cooked and eaten a lamb in this way before. They'd never had to collect its blood for any special purpose, and they'd certainly never had to smear it on their doorposts. And we can only imagine the horror of their Egyptian neighbours as they looked on. For the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet, one of the most powerful of the Egyptian deities, was said to be attracted by blood. Now Sekhmet was Egypt's goddess of war and destruction. She was said to be directly associated with plagues. Sekhmet was the daughter of their supreme sun god Ra, and the Egyptians believed that she carried out Ra's decisions to have Egyptians or their enemies killed. Attracting this raging lion-headed Sekhmet with blood was not something anyone would be advised to do. What a powerful image those blood-smeared door frames must have been for the Israelites who by obedience came under that covering of blood, but also for the Egyptians for whom Sekhmet proved powerless, even when baited by blood in the face of the God of Israel. The Israelites were further instructed there, as we read, to eat with their cloak tucked into their belt, sandals on their feet and a staff in their hand. That's an image of being prepared. 
It's a bit like when the Donald family have a big holiday planned and we book the cheapest flights possible because when there's seven of you, saving a few hundred dollars here or there on each flight adds up to quite a lot of money very quickly. And we've learned from experience that the cheapest flights tend to depart at around four o'clock in the morning, give or take a few hours. So all bags are packed, they're all loaded in the car, snacks are at ready, and the younger children go to bed fully clothed so that they can be picked up from their sleep and whisked into the car. That's how Israel were to eat this Passover, ready to go at a minute's notice. Dusty sandals would never have normally been worn inside the home. And who would have a need for a staff inside the house? But on this occasion, that's how they were to eat, cloaked, tucked in, so that it wouldn't be free-flowing and potentially hinder them moving, sandals on, staff in hand, ready to go. How strange all of this must have seemed to them. And what faith these people exhibited for two million of them to obey. And obey they did, dipping hyssop into the blood collected from their lambs and painting the top and both sides of their door frames with it. And then, as instructed by Moses, they remained inside under the covering of that blood while the firstborn of all of Egypt was struck down at midnight. Let's read now from Exodus chapter 12 verses 28 to 32. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said and go and bless me. That is how close to two million people spared from judgment by the blood of the lambs, rose early in the morning and walked away as free men, women and children from their slavery because they obeyed. Psalm 105 tells the story of the Exodus and it gives voice to their feelings. Verse 43 reads, So he brought his people out with joy his chosen ones with singing. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to walk away from the land of your captivity carrying the silver and gold of that nation? No wonder they came out with joy and singing. Contrast the joyful noise of Israel in their obedience to the woeful wailing of the households of Egypt under Pharaoh who could not or would not obey and found themselves under the judgment of the Lord. 
And I hope you're seeing those big red pointy hands right here at this point. For Israel's journey as God's chosen people began with God's gracious provision of the shed blood of a lamb and it was sealed with their obedience to his command to come under the covering of that shed blood as they painted it on their door frames and waited inside their home. Our journey, likewise, as children of God, begins with God's gracious provision of Jesus, our Passover lamb. And it's sealed with our obedience to his command to come and follow him. In doing so, we bring ourselves under the covering of that shed blood of our Passover lamb, blood that would have stained the wooden crossbeams when he died for us. A gift of grace to spare us from the judgment and the wrath of God, no doubt, but one that requires action on our part, just as it did Israel. So if you haven't done that already, it's time to come. Come under that blood that was shed for you at the cross. Accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers and begin your journey with him. I want you to put yourself for a moment in the sandals of those people. You're one of two million. And out you go into the early hours of the morning with the hordes of others and all the flocks and herds of Israel with you. The children are sleepy. The women carry cakes of unleavened bread for the journey. Stashed away in pouches is the silver and the gold of Egypt. And aside from that, all you have with you is the clothes that you're wearing and whatever you can manage to carry. You have no real idea of exactly where you are going, how long it will take you to get there, or what your arrival date will be. Perhaps if you did know, you might have turned back at this point, but you don't. And neither does anyone else in any more than just a very general sense. In a day or two, the food that you've carried with you will be consumed. And it's going to take 1,500 tonnes of food every day to feed this nation on the move. They're going to need 400 million litres of water to cater for their hydration and hygiene and cooking needs. 4,000 tonnes of wood are going to be required to cook their food. You think you've got a few things on your mind? Spare a thought for Moses. He's leading this nation out into the desert wilderness. Could there be a clearer picture of obedience? The sounds of joyful singing rise above the cacophony of the movement of people and animals. Well, these are a people that have experienced firsthand the saving power of God. And we are just such a people. If you've come under that covering of the shed blood of Christ crucified, then you have embarked on that journey. You are free from the bondage of sin. And sure, we all know we're heading to the promised land, 
eternity in heaven. But how each of us will get there or how long it will take, none of us know. The call is to be ready. Eat in haste, sandals on, staff in hand, cloak tucked into your belt. Now, of course, I don't mean literally wolf down every meal, wear sandals at all times, even inside and even in bed. Get around with a staff in your hand, buy a cloak and tuck it into your belt. These were symbols relevant for the time that simply say to us, be ready. To have your cloak tucked in, as I said, meant that you would be unhindered on your journey. You won't be tripping up on a long flowing garment. We need to be unhindered in our journey following God. We need to throw off that which hinders us. Sandals on your feet meant you were to be prepared to go at any time. The staff was used for support on a journey, but it was also a form of protection from wild animals. To eat in haste was to be ready and watchful. None of us know when our last days will be. Will we pass before Christ comes again? Or will we hear the trumpet sound heralding judgment on all the earth? None of us know. In the meantime, all of us who, like the Israelites, have come under that shed blood of the Passover lamb must be ready and we must be watchful. We must be prepared to go where we're called we must do away with all that hinders us and we must do all that we can to equip ourselves for the journey, not with a literal staff, but with the staff of the word of God to lean on. That's how we're called to live. And it's a challenge, isn't it? To be ready, watchful, prepared to go and actively equipping ourselves. But I think there's an even greater challenge here for us today and we find it in Psalm 105, in that verse 43, that tells us that the people came out with joy and with singing. Granted, it didn't last forever. A few years wandering around in the wilderness will do that to you. But while Egypt was wailing, God's people embarked on their journey with him joyfully and with singing because they had experienced firsthand that saving grace of God. They didn't know how they would get where they were going. They didn't know what they would even eat beyond the next couple of days. But they faced what lay ahead joyfully and with singing because they'd experienced the saving power of God. And we have experienced that same saving power. And so our lives should be characterised by that same joy and singing how easy it is for us, like Israel, to default to grumbling when our journey gets difficult. I know, I've done it myself, even in the last couple of weeks. Another six weeks of lockdown, back to homeschooling, grumble, grumble, how are we going to get through this? Joyfully and with singing. That's how we'll do it, at least that's how we'll try to do it. And those among us who are struggling or apprehensive or frightened or for whom joy just seems difficult to come by right now in their journey of faith, those 
will be carried on the joyful song of others, as I suppose some among the Israelites must have been. What a sight it must have been for the Egyptians who witnessed the Exodus, who watched the people of God finally free move on in one in their obedience, all the while their joyful singing ringing in their ears as they departed off into the wilderness. May our friends and our relatives feel that same joy radiate from us as we journey on with the Lord. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. Deep and rich, it has spoken to Jews and to Christians through so many generations. Thank you, Lord, that my right standing with God does not depend upon me continually sacrificing for myself. Thank you that the sacrifice has been made. Thank you that I can come under the covering of the shed blood of Jesus who died on the cross for me. Thank you that by this shed blood I am truly free, spared from judgment, just like Israel on that first Passover. Lord, help each one of us to be obedient to your call on our lives in the here and now. Even when we can't see the complete journey laid out before us. May the freedom that we have in Christ cause joy to well up within us and flow out from us as we journey with you through whatever life circumstances hold each day. Amen. May God the Father prepare your journey. May Jesus the Son guide your footsteps. May the spirit of life strengthen your body and may the three in one watch over you on every road that you may follow. Amen. Have a good week.